You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Hear the word of the Lord spoken to us this morning. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You travel all over the land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. Woe to you, blind gods! You say, whoever takes an oath by the temple, it means nothing. Whoever takes an oath by the gold of the temple is bound by his oath. Blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Also, whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing. But whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on, that is, on is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes an oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and him who dwells in it. And the one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by he who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint and dill and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you should have done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the dish and the cup, but inside they are full of greed and indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And they say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the prophets' blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins." Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sage, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of of Berecham. Um, whom the murdered, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. You guys can take a deep breath. All right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. (laughs) By any and all accounts, Matthew 23 is one of the hardest and most difficult texts in all of Scripture. In this text, 
Jesus addresses the scribes and the Pharisees, and he describes them as hypocrites. He describes them as sons of hell, blind guides, fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, snakes, vipers, persecutors, and yes, even murderers. It's not difficult to understand what Jesus is saying, but this test is very difficult to apply. Its message is especially penetrating and convicting, for in it, Jesus exposes the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, the scribes, and the Pharisees. And so during church, Carlisle, if we listen rightly, if we listen rightly this morning, we also can feel our own hearts being operated on in the process. Love what John MacArthur says about this in his commentary. He says, Jesus' words in this passage fly from his lips like claps of thunder and spears of lightning. Out of his mouth on this occasion came the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus uttered on earth. See, we have the tendency to read this passage and focus on how these evil men, how these unjust men deserved the wrath and condemnation from Jesus. We have the tendency to read this passage and focus on how these evil men must have evoked such wrath and condemnation from Jesus. However, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most highly regarded religious leaders of their day. They were very devout in the things of the law. They were very devout in the things of God. They were there very devout in knowing God's word. And instead of seeing these men as being not sincere, we should see them as, being, as not being insincere, for they fully believed in what they were doing. And they believed that it was right and it was good. And guess what? So did everyone else. <laughs> and for this reason, this text offers us a serious caution as a church. The warning in Matthew 23 applies not just to the scribes and the Pharisees, but to anyone who professes Jesus Christ as both your Lord and your Savior. And here's the somber reality for all of us to consider today. Here's the somber reality. It's possible for you and me to believe genuinely that we are doing God's work obeying God's word and accomplishing God's will, yet being spiritually deceived. It's possible for you and for me to believe genuinely that we are doing God's work, that we are obeying God's word, accomplishing God's will, yet still being spiritually deceived and on our way to hell. Therefore, we shouldn't read this passage as, as if it was simply directed to a group of people 2,000 years ago in Jesus' day. We need to humbly listen to the words that Jesus pronounces and ask that he graciously apply them to our lives. 
So this morning, I invite you to consider these two following questions. Where in my life am I being deceived? Where in my life am I being deceived? I don't say this from a political standpoint. I'm not saying this as a Republican. I'm not saying this as a Democrat. I'm not saying as a white, um, a white man or a black man. I can't be a white man. Excuse me. I'm sorry for that. But where in my life am I being deceived? It's a humble question to consider because in order to consider the question, you first have to realize you are able to be deceived. All of us in this room, in one shape or one another, can be deceived. We don't have it all together. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. You and I can be deceived. And the reason why we can be deceived is a number of reasons. The number one reason is because we embody this thing called the flesh. And the flesh wants us to do anything and everything contrary to the spirit of God and his word. It aches and desires to do the wrong things. That's why you don't have to tell a two-year-old how to do the wrong things. Two-year-olds already know how to do the wrong things. (laughs) You got to show a two-year-old how to do the right things. This thing called the flesh can deceive us. Not only the flesh, we live in a broken and fallen world. We live in a world that is not how God created it to be. And listen to me carefully when I say this, because this is very important. We can't blame God for the brokenness of this world. It's not his fault. You know whose fault it is? It's our fault. It is the fault of Adam and Eve being deceived by the serpent in Genesis 3 and not looking to God for his or her provision, but looking to a fruit, looking to an opportunity, and looking to a lie that caused them to believe and be deceived that caused the brokenness that we experience within this broken world. Listen to me again. You can be deceived. Not only do you have the flesh, not only you have a broken world, but you also have a arch called Satan, who is the father of lies. He speaks nothing of the truth because there's no truth in him. And he comes against you constantly with statement after statement after statement of lies. Listen to me, church. You can be deceived. So I hope I'm listening to an audience that we all can agree from the very beginning that, yes, we can be included in this passage as well. We're not exempt. We don't get a free pass. Because we, too, can be deceived. So I need you to ask this question, where in my life am I being deceived? The second question I need you to ask is quite similar but a little different. Where in my life? Am I missing God? Where in my life am I missing God? And here's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer is quite simple. Lord, 
expose our blind spots, uncover our hearts, and save us from ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do love you and we thank you. We ask that you would be with us now in this time of preaching. May your word be sharper than any two-edged sword, and may you draw near to us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be the great comforter and convictor of our hearts. Would you both encourage and convict our hearts to be able to realize that we are able to be deceived, and as people who are being deceived, we can look to the righteous Redeemer, Christ Jesus. So Jesus, would you heal, would you restore, would you redeem? Would you draw near to us in our time of need this morning? Father, as always, I ask that you hide me behind the cross. Take my little and make much of it as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, Pastor Nick did an excellent, excellent job of helping us re-enter into our text today. He mentioned that Jesus' primary frustration with the scribes and Pharisees was simply because the religious leaders were majoring on the minor. They were majoring on the minor things of the law while also holding others to a standard that they themselves weren't willing to uphold. I love what Craig Keener says this this in his commentary. He says, Jesus accuses them, them being the scribes and the Pharisees, Jesus accuses them of being too strict with others while too lenient with their own failings. As we considered last week's sermon, here are some questions that we should reconsider looking at last week's sermon. Number one, do we fail to practice what we preach? If we're able to be deceived and if there are things in our lives, the flesh, the world, and even Satan himself who causes us or desires for us and provide ways and temptations for us to be deceived, we have to consider these questions and allow these questions to be examinations in our own life. The first question from last week's sermon that we should consider is this, do we fail to practice what we preach? And honestly, you probably shouldn't answer that question. (laughs) You know who should probably answer that question? Those people who are closest to you. Ask your wife, ask your husband, ask your roommate, ask your best friend, parents, ask your children. (laughs) Bring some tissue with you just in case if you decide to do that. There might be some tears that come after the answer to that question. I know there are for me many times when I ask my kids that question. Do we fail to practice what we teach? Verses 1 through 4 was the primary question we should look at from last week. Verses 5 and 6 from last week. Are we not content with the approval of God? And this is very important for us because if you're not content with the approval of God, we will always seek approval from something or someone. Number three, do we assert our superiority over others? Do we have to feel like we are Um, in in a place of position or authority? Do we feel like we have to be in a place of superiority over someone else in order to feel accepted and loved, in order to feel importance? Let me ask you a question. When is the last time you allow someone to help you? You know, a lot of times we love helping other people. We love 
responding to other people's needs. We love going out and and, and doing good works for other people, neighbors, our wives, our children, husbands. I'm looking particularly, particularly to you this morning. When is the last time you allowed someone to help you? Not you going out and fixing things and doing things and, and preparing things and, and, and ordering things. and organ- When is the last time you allow your children, your wife, your friends, your family to serve you? See, humility is not just about all that you do for others. Humility is also seen in how you allow people to enter into your needs and into your desires as well. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of Scripture is not just Jesus hanging on the cross, which definitely it is, because on the cross he was dying for the humanity of sins. But one of the most equal beautiful pictures of the, of, of, of the gospel is Jesus sitting in a chair and allowing a woman of the night to come and break perfume and, and cleanse And love on him and put perfume on his, t- on his feet to prepare him for burial. <laughs> Jesus didn't need that. He didn't need that per- perfume to raise from the dead. He didn't need that perfume to die on the cross. But you know why he did it? He didn't do it for his benefit. He did it, he did it for hers. <laughs> and you know what? He looked at that Pharisee after she did that. You know what he said to him? You know what he said to her? He said, listen, he said, those who love, love a little those who love a lot, give a lot. Those who love a little, give a little. This woman, out of her love for me, took the most expensive thing that she had and she broke it and put it on my feet. Church family, don't get it twisted. Humility is not always what you do for others. Humility is also allowing others to do for you. May we grow as a church. This is my prayer as your pastor. May we grow in a church that allows and encourage others to step into our times of need, our times of hurting, and our time of brokenness. It's not about you responding, always responding to someone else's need. It's not always about you being the hero and the rescuer. Sometimes it's about allowing God to use someone else to rescue you in your time of need. Sometimes it's not about you serving your children. Sometimes it's about you allowing your children to serve you. Now, please don't take that to the extreme and go home and say, tell your children to get your favorite drink and prop up your feet so you can watch the game this afternoon. Please don't take it to that extreme. But there are ways in which your children desire to serve you that we as parents are too prideful to let them to do that. Be humble. There's, there are ways in which our spouses want to love us and care for us. Ways that our roommates desire to love us and care for us that we prevent them from doing because of our pride. May that not be so in our church. So do we practice? Do we fail to practice what we preach? Are we not content with the approval of God? Do we assert our superiority over others? Are we hypocritically centered on ourselves? These are four questions from last week. And this week, what I want to do is look at at three different questions. Number one, are we hindering people's salvation? We see that in verses 13 through 15. In verses 16 through 24, we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we more concerned with biblical minutia than with practical ministry? 
And then verses in 25 through 28, are we more focused on outward cleanliness instead of inward holiness? This morning in our passage today, we discover four possibilities of being self-deceived. Let me give you the first one. The first one is this. If you're taking notes, this is point number one. It's possible to be around God while still having your life devoid of him. It's possible to be around the things of God and yet have your life devoid of him. We see that in verses 13 through 15. In verses 20 through 24, we see that it's possible to obey the details of the law while despising God in your heart. Verses 25 through 28, we see that it's possible to appear holy before men without truly being holy before God. And lastly, but not leastly, verses 27 through 31, we see that it's possible to commit the same mistakes from our past, even when we thought that we've learned from them. Let's look at our first deception here. It's possible to be around the things of God while still having your life devoid of him. Look with me in verses 13 and 15. Jesus says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel all over the land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as fit for hell as you are. You see, being a religious leader in Jerusalem was very different from being a pastor today. Israel's history, their culture, and daily life centered around its relationship with God. The difference between Israel and, and what we know today is, um, uh, as our American country is simple. Our American country is a democracy. It is a nation for the people and by the people. This week we saw that, the installation and in in, in, in installation of a new president on Wednesday into the White House. But see, Israel didn't work like that. Israel was not a democracy. Israel was a theocracy. It was a nation that was ruled by the very hand, the very rules, the very person of God himself. That's why these laws were so important. They weren't just things to do. They were promises and principles to live by from the very hand and breath of God himself. And as such, the religious leaders were the best known, most powerful, and most respected of all the leaders at this time. So when Jesus makes these stinging accusations towards the scribes and the Pharisee, it is both shocking and it's also convicting. It's shocking because they seemed and they proclaimed at that time that they were considered to be perfect and flawless before God. So the thought here, as, as people were hearing these, these things from Jesus, was if, if God was pleased with anyone, it had to be them. <laughs> if God was going to be pleased with anyone, right, it had to be the people who were following him the closest and the most intimately. So this was, news was very shocking to many people that were hearing it at the time. But yet it was also convicting. It was convicting because Jesus' accusations reveal, reveal the lie that we constantly believe 
in our hearts that religious activity can be substituted for a right relationship with God. We believe this. We believe that we believe that religious activity, that doing things that the way that God has prescribed should make us all right with God. This is a good reminder for us as a church as we look at this series. This, we're, we're walking through now our second value, our, excuse me, our first value of maturity. And in our maturity series, do you remember what we talked about, what walking in maturity or walking in wisdom looks like? We said walking in wisdom is not a destination, but walking in wisdom is a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's not a destination. It's not a place of arrival. No one in this church has arrived to walking in perfect wisdom with God. I don't care if you're seven years old, 37 years old, or 97 years old. No one has developed a perfect system of walking with God in perfect wisdom. That's why we need each other, and that's why we need community. But walking in wisdom is not a destination. Walking in wisdom is a lifestyle. So what would happen if you consider walking in wisdom as a destination and not a lifestyle? Well, if you see it as a destination, (laughs) these woes, if you will, have been suited for you. You see, the Pharisees would travel around the world to be on mission to convert men and women to Judaism. However, their converts would be worse off than them because a, a religion of deeds... A religion of doing puts pressure on people to surpass others in what they know and what they can do. It's kind of like the crabs in a bucket mentality. You put a whole bunch of crabs in a bucket, what happens? They all fight to try to get to the top. They're all trying to one-up one another to, to get to the top of the pail or the bucket in order to escape. It is this mentality that was being perpetuated. And notice the Pharisees' converts were more attracted to being a Pharisee than they were to God himself. Be careful, church. Be careful. Careful of attracting people to a culture and not Christ. Be careful of raising your families with great messages, but messages that are not centered on the Messiah. Be careful, because a hypocritical teacher is more likely to have students who are even more hypocritical. And what we see here in this text, and what Jesus is bringing pronouncement on the Pharisees, is saying that, listen, You are producing what you are. (laughs) You are producing what you are. (laughs) You're going out in the name of Judaism and in the name of God, but we don't have more God followers. We have more Pharisee followers. Careful. Careful. Here's a warning to us that we must be careful not not to recreate Pharisees by emphasizing outward obedience at the expense of inward renewal. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer says it this way. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intents may be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Let me repeat that again. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor, says these words to us that I think are still timely for where we are, even as a church today. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the community, Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. What he's saying here is that if you, he says, be careful not to destroy the very thing that you claim that you love. Because it doesn't look the way you want it to look. Because it doesn't act the way you want it to act. Because it doesn't sound the way that you want it to sound. Be careful not to destroy the very thing that you love. It's a good reminder for us as a church of identity precedes function. Who we are is so more important than what we do. Remember your identity, church. Remember that you are a blood-bought son and daughter of Christ if you place your faith in him. Remember that your identity precedes your function, that your identity, even if you go out in the street right now, get in an accident and become a paraplegic, meaning that you cannot use any limb in your body, you are still no less valuable in the kingdom of God and within this church. Because your function, what you do, is not what's most important about you. Who you are is what's most important about you. Pharisees got so caught up in the details of their additional laws and regulations. They got so caught up in their function, what they did before God, that they completely missed God to whom the laws themselves pointed. Exception number one, it's possible to be around the things of God while still having your life devoid of him. Number two, verses 23 and 24, it's possible to obey the details of the law while despising God in your heart. Look with me in these verses. Whenever you see these verses, Jesus is kind of using a cadence here. He's using a rhythm. So whenever you see the woe, the woe is the judgment. It's the pronouncement of what Jesus says. And usually, not always, when he says blind guides, blind guides indicates Jesus providing application. So the woe is the big idea. Hey, this is what you're doing wrong. And usually when he says blind guides, he lands it into a specific example of how they're getting it wrong. Does that make sense? So listen with me in in, in these verses, verses 23 and 24. It says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, deal, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Here we go, blind guides. So this is the big, big message. Here's how it was applied. Blind guys, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. <laughs> I love Jesus. Got some jokes, y'all. Jesus is funny. Jesus is funny. He's got some jokes. See, the scribes and the Pharisees were meticulous about the details of ceremonial cleanliness. However, they lost their perspective on inner purity. Now, now notice the irony. Notice the irony. The Pharisees would literally 
take water and put it through a strainer meticulously so that they would not accidentally swallow a gnat or a fly. Because a a fly or a gnat was seen as being an unclean insect according to the law. So they would go through all of these measures in order to take their water, strain it multiple times to make sure that they would not uh, uh, swallow a small little gnat. But yet they neglected, as Jesus says, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So what Micah 6, 8 says, Michael 6, 8 says these words, he says, he has told you, each of you, what is good and what is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. This is a good word for us today, church, because this could be applied to us. This could be applied to a person who could be very precise and faithful about giving 10% of your money to God. You never miss a month of, of paying your tithes because that's so important, which it is yesterday, man. If you didn't do that, these lights wouldn't be on and these people wouldn't be on the stage and your pastor would still be here, but he'd be broke. Amen. We can be precise and faithful about giving 10% of our money to God, but refuse to give one minute of our time in helping others. We we can faithfully attend and participate within community, community group activities on a weekly basis, yet we treat our coworkers as if they're not made in the same in the same image of God that we are. We can attend every Sunday service, yet fail to embody and exemplify the gospel of Jesus Christ to those closest to us who are roommates, our family members, and even our next door neighbors. So warning for us this morning that while tithing is very important, giving your tithe doesn't exempt us from fulfilling God's other directives. Be careful of the self-deception of believing that you are okay with God because you have done something for God. We are never okay with, we're never okay with God because of what we have done. We are okay with God because of what he has done on the cross of Calvary. Jesus purifies us. He makes us acceptable before a holy and righteous God. It's not anything you do. It's not anything you sing. It's not anything you wear or don't wear. Jesus. Bloody cross, the empty tomb. Jesus, the, 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 the king who was soon to return. Jesus, Mary's baby. Jesus, the carpenter's son, the son of Joseph, the carpenter. Jesus is what makes us acceptable to God. It's very important for us as a church because, again, if we don't realize the importance of identity preceding function, we will always live our life from the place of function and rarely out of identity. And here's why this is so important, because, listen, 
Your function may not always be functional, functional bowl. You may not always be able to do the things that you love in the church. You may not be able to be able, be able to serve the way that you want to serve in the church. You may not always be able to be a part of a, the community group like you've always been a part of the community group in the church. Your function cannot determine your identity. It's our identity that determines our function, our identity in Christ. Look with me with this third deception. The third deception is this. It's possible to appear holy before men without truly being holy before God. Verses 25 through 28, listen to these words of Jesus. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the dish and the cup, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Again, here's the application. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Love this because Jesus openly condemns the, 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 the Pharisees and the religious leaders for outwardly appearing saintly and holy, but inwardly remaining full of corruption and greed. Love what David Platt says about this. He says in his commentary, he says, you don't, you don't merely clean the outside of the club, you clean the inside first. And then the outside will become clean. When you only focus on the outside and your religion is all about external improvement, you become like whitewashed tombs. Notice with me, purity before God always begins in the heart. Purity before God always begins in the heart. This makes sense of what Jesus said earlier in Matthew, Matthew 5, 8, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean, pure in heart? Pure in heart means that you see God without obstruction, that you can see God clearly. There's nothing that is causing you to to get a distorted view of who God is. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see who? They shall see God. I pray as a church that we would desire to become pure in heart. (laughs) Pure in heart. Free free of obstruction, free of blockage, free of hindrances that, that cause us to have a distorted view of God. But also with this pronouncement and woe, it's not just a good reminder that purity before God always begins in the heart. It's also a warning. There's a warning for us that it's possible to keep up appearances while your private life is corrupt. And if I'm totally honest and totally transparent, this is what I fear for our church. (laughs) I fear that every Sunday when we come in here, we put on the mask of churchism. We put on the mask of making making this seem like everything is going all right and everything is okay and everything is, is, is wonderful 
when, when our private lives, our home lives, our devotional lives are devoid of the very presence of God. We come to the church putting on masks. This, this word hypocrite is literally a word for mask. You, you put on a mask in order to appease your audience. You, you put on an appearance. You put on that smiling face or you put on that appearance of everything go, is going okay when your life is really a living hell. Church, may we not be like that. May we not put on appearances that our marriage is, is going well or that our heart is not breaking or our bank account, our bank, our bank, account, our bank accounts are, 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 are insufficient and, and needing help. May we not put on the mask of religiosity, praising God all day Sunday, but, but Monday through Saturday, cussing our kids out and fighting and, and being unloving towards those around us. May we not be hypocrites. Because this is not a place for hypocrites. This is a place for sinners. This is a place for the broken. This is a place for the needy. This is a place for, for, for community to want to grow together, to heal together, and to encourage one another to greater godliness. If you are wearing your mask, I encourage you to take it off. No masks are needed here. You don't have to wear a mask of really religiosity. You don't have to try to impress me as the pastor. You don't have to impress your community group leader. You don't even have to try to impress your spouse or your roommate. We want to be a church that's authentic and real with the real issues because the real issues are what need to be dealt with. The real issues of the heart. Again, purity before God always begins in the heart. And before we can even deal with the heart, we first have to deal with our hypocrisy. May God help us in that way. Deception number four, verses 27 to 36, he says this. It's, it's possible to commit the same mistakes from our past, even when we thought that we've learned from them. Hear these words of Jesus in, starting in verse 27. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs with a pure beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous, and you say... If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part of them in shedding the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourself that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. So all the righteous blood shed on earth will be charged to you from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkeah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. I love this because Jesus gives a brief history of Old Testament martyrdom. Notice that he mentions two prominent figures. He says, righteous Abel. He says, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. 
These are two very important figures in Old Testament history because this was both the first martyr recorded in Scripture and also the last martyr. Abel was the first martyr. He was the first one to lose his life from his brother's hands in Genesis 4. And Zechariah was the last martyr, according to 2 Chronicles 24, verses 20 and 21, who was murdered in the Hebrew Bible. Notice verse 30. Notice Jesus' accusation against these people. He says, the people of Jesus' generation said that they would not act as their fathers did in killing the prophets whom God had sent them. This is where they're, <laughs> this is the place of their pride. They're saying, listen, we know our fathers were sinful. We know they were wrong. They killed prophets back then. We would not dare do that today. <laughs> Jesus looks at them. And he says, yes, you did not kill those prophets in the past. But in the coming days and the weeks, you're going to kill the greatest prophet of them all who's standing before you right now. You see, they would become guilty of all the righteous blood shed throughout the centuries. And not to fast forward too, too, too far, but, but listen, do you remember the, the occurrence with Jesus and, and Pilate? When Pilate brought out Barabbas and Jesus and he came before the people and said, hey, who should I set free? And he, Pilate did that because he knew Jesus was an innocent man. And he was hoping that the people would be logical and say, yes, free Jesus. He's, he is the innocent man. Barabbas, we know he, he's, done, he's a, a modern day terrorist at this time. We know the horrible things he's done. Free Jesus and let's keep Barabbas. But they actually did the opposite. Listen to the words in Matthew 27. It says, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, he took some water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to yourselves. Listen to the people's response. All the people answered him, his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. I don't know about you, <laughs> but that statement is very impactful for me today. His blood be on us and our children. And it's impactful for me today because, one, I can't believe how the people who just claimed in verse 30 that they would never kill another prophet sent from them from God would plan to kill Jesus, although he was an innocent man, having no evidence except for grace, mercy, and faithfulness having no evidence except miraculous things that only he can do by the hand of God, having no evidence except for raising the, the, the dead and healing the lame and curing the blind, they sent him to the cross. And they had the audacity not just to send him on the cross, but they had the audacity to say, his blood be on us and our children. Well, people of Israel, I have to give you, give you, have you good news this morning. Although you meant that statement to be evil, and although you meant that statement 
not to mean what it means. It means so much to me today that Jesus' blood be on us and our children. Because the blood that you thought you were shedding of a guilty man, the blood that you thought you were shedding of a man who was being blasphemous, saying and proclaiming that he was God, the blood that you shed out of hatred and evil, that very blood saves me today. Amen? Thank God that his blood be on us and our children. His blood is sufficient to make us whole. His blood is sufficient to give us redemption and wholeness. His blood is is sufficient. Even when we are being deceived. Pray with me. Father, we do love you and we thank you. We ask that you would be with us. God, thank you for those words that his blood be on us and our children. May your blood, yes, Jesus, may your blood be on us. Not in the way that they intended, but the way that you purposed it from eternity past. May your blood be on us, God. May it cover a multitude of sin. Would you heal and redeem us? Would you grow us in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? May he be exalted in every way. We love you and thank you. You are a good, good father. You're a great king. No one is greater than you. And as we partake of this bread and wine, may we be reminded that, yes, your blood has been shed for the forgiveness, the remission of our sins in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. The bread and wine that we're about to partake of speaks to the reality of God being our perfect and all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. If you are not a Christian, do not partake of this meal because this meal is not for you. This meal is only reserved for those who have confessed their sins and been baptized in the waters. By partaking in this meal, proclaims more than just taking bread and wine. It proclaims Jesus' death until he returns. We're reminded that he alone can fully and eternally atone for our sins. And by it, we're reminded that he alone has given himself as a sacrifice, as a peace offering before God. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, blessed and broken, and said to disciples, take eat. This is my body broken for you. Let us eat that bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the same way, he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, said, drink it, all of you. This is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. Let us take and drink that cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on to say, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with with you in my Father's kingdom. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing and preaching of his word. Amen. Amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.